My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. We are the Popcorn Poops. Here at Popcorn Poops HQ, we produce a movie podcast and commentary track hybrid that may be synced up to whatever film we're talking about or enjoyed as a standalone audio program. Today, we will be watching the 1983 film, The Dead Zone, directed by David Cronenberg. If you are syncing this recording up to the movie, go ahead and start the film and then press pause as soon as the Paramount logo completely fades to black. It's time to start the movie. Sinkers, press play at the beep after the countdown. Ready? Three, two, one. So, Dead Zone, take two. <laughs> what could I possibly mean by the Dead Zone, take two? Meaning we just watched this about 20 seconds ago. We did. And uh, there was a, a a bit of a technical difficulty and um, our audio was unusable. So we are watching this for the second time in a row. Yay! And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little bit frustrated. So I've decided to enjoy this phlegm with a beer. So I'm, I'm drinking a, a 9% alcohol by volume uh, triple. I don't know the brand, but it's very tasty, and uh, and it will it will uh, mitigate my frustration. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> but yes, we are watching uh, David Cronenberg's 1983 film, The Dead Zone, which happens to be my favorite film by my favorite filmmaker. But it's, not your favorite film. No, not my favorite movie of all time. But David Cronenberg is my favorite director, and this is my favorite movie by him. So that kind of that probably puts it really really close to the top of my all-time list. Hmm. But lots of his movies are way up there. I, I like I love most of the stuff he's done. I've only hated one of his films that was Cosmopolis that came out a couple years ago. I did not did not enjoy at all what he was going for there. I could see that he was going for something. I wasn't on board for it, but that's that's okay. Um I do love this opening credit sequence right here. I think that the credit sequence itself is very much, uh, if you've seen the movie, it's kind of an interesting visual representation of what the dead zone is, what they explain the dead zone to be within the, the context of the movie. Um, they get into it a little bit later um, in just one scene toward the end of the movie. They talk about what it is. But if you've seen it, then you can kind of, I think you can appreciate the uh, the style of this uh, credit sequence a little bit more where, you know, these photographs are, there's kind of a slideshow of photographs and there's black being taken out of the negative space of the words, the dead zone and the, the official dead zone logo, the official dead zone logo. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's, and yeah, it's cool. nice because it's playing off of the dead zone. It's showing us the, the, Black, dark. Now, unlike the Buffy the Vampire Slayer commentary that we did, uh, I know nothing about the TV show starring oh, Anthony Michael Hall. There was a TV show. There was. It was a pretty successful, very popular TV show, as I understand it. I've never seen a single episode. So my experience with this movie is 100% this movie. And also, you know, my experience with, with Cronenberg as a filmmaker um, I'm kind of surprised you've never watched any of the TV show. No, I'm as not much interested. As you love this movie. I'm not interested. Why? Why are you not interested? Because I'm. I, I like this. I like this movie because of the craft that goes into making it. I like this movie for the specific performances that 
Cronenberg got out of his actors. Um, I'm not interested in seeing this particular narrative translated to the TV medium because I can, I can imagine this story translated. What is it like a crime drama? Yeah, yeah, it's like a supernatural crime drama. Ah, I see. Yeah, I see. Interestingly, the we're seeing the character of Johnny Smith played by Christopher Walken. Uh, in the scene prior to this, he was reading The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, and he assigns them, and actually the, he comes back, the, the film actually comes back to the poem of the Raven later on when it has a bit more uh, emotional significance mm, to the character right. of John, Johnny, but we'll get to that when that comes up. Um, he assigns the class The Legend of Sleepy Hollow as reading homework. Interestingly, 16 years after this movie was released, Christopher Walken portrayed the headless, quote-unquote, headless demon that he refers to in that scene in Tim Burton's 1999 film adaptation of that story. So, I think that's pretty interesting. He's also obviously playing an, an English teacher. Uh, Stephen King was actually an English teacher before he became a full-time writer. That's creative another writing interesting professor. thing. Uh, cr- creative writing professor. You know, same, same thing. It's an English teacher. <laughs> hmm. Where did he teach? Oh, I don't know. A community Some, college? Or a university or something, I think. If it was a community college. It may have been Same as English college. teacher. What? Creative writing Excuse professor me? at a community college is same as high school English teacher to me. What? Is that unfair? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is. Don't you think it's kind of interesting how he looks like Stephen King? How he's with the big glasses and the hair kind of combed down around his head. And he's got a very Stephen King look about him. He really does. He definitely does have a Stephen King look. And that's interesting because later he has a very Cronenberg look. He does, with the look. hair kind of standing up on end and the wide, wild-eyed stare, yeah. you know, thousand-yard stare. Yeah, it's, it's Glassy eyes. So both, both, ostensibly both creators of this movie, Stephen King being the author of the book and Cronenberg as the director of the film, both get to kind of imbue their, their image Onto, onto the, the main character. character, yeah. Um, uh, here he goes denying. Oh, interestingly, um, we didn't say this in take one, but I think take two will will inevitably be better than take one. So because so you have a beer, the, so. because I have a beer, that's that's the reason. Uh, but the film makes a reference to Sleepy Hollow, like we said. But that story is actually also about a school teacher, and in the novel. Uh, of that this is based on Johnny compares his coma that he's going to go into in a scene or two uh, and subsequent recovery uh, to Rip Van Winkle which is another short story written by Washington Irving mm, interesting and this movie actually has several literary references in it um, there's one to Sleeping Beauty later on that we'll bring up mm-hmm. but we can see that his his character is not exactly what you would expect or maybe not, I don't know what's normal. Who knows what normal is? But he he won't go inside the house because he thinks that they should wait, probably until marriage, to to have sex, I guess. So, yeah, he, he, he claims his desire to marry her, but he's not going to consummate their relationship yet because, as he says, some things are worth waiting for. I think that's the line. He's a good old-fashioned guy. Real old-fashioned guy. And we get... We get a, sen- a sense for why he is like we get that. A, we get a drive carefully, a very throwaway line that uh, is not so throwaway in this movie. So it's raining um, in the scene, raining pretty heavily. And the, 
As far as I can tell, the rain basically immediately disappears and turns into fog. Not raining anymore. Just foggy. Does rain turn into fog? Well, I mean, I guess... No, it's raining. Oh, it is raining. It is raining. It is raining still. I thought it turned to fog. I guess I'm wrong. Oh, it looks foggy also. Foggy and rainy. It can be rainy and foggy. Which is a deadly combination. Um, And night. And nighttime. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Um, I didn't say anything uh, about her. The the actress that plays uh, his... The love interest, uh, his girlfriend, whose character's name is Sarah Bracknell. I don't know that we ever hear her name. Hmm. Maybe Just he ca- maybe he called her Miss Bracknell when she came out of the classroom. Maybe like, coyly. Uh, she's played by an actress named um, Brooke Adams, and I, I think she kind of looks like a poor man's Karen Allen. Uh, a little bit. Karen Allen Karen being Allen is uh, who. Marion Ravenwood from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, oh, okay. okay. And Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, good. And also the mom from The Sandlot. I never saw that. And Dennis Leary's the dad. Nope. And Dennis Leary being from Rescue Me. Okay. Which is a really depressing show. Oh, I think we watched a couple episodes about yeah, that. And did. he like gave a kitten oxygen and a little girl and the kitten survived and the little girl didn't or something like that. It was really awful. No, that, that whole show is about like children dying and adults dealing with it, I think. Yeah, that's awful. Very dramatic. I remember getting sad feelings. She does resemble Karen Allen, though, doesn't she? I thought that's who it was at first, actually. That's I think she's probably I thought it was. best known for the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, oh, which seen that. also has, um, um, what's his name? Donald uh-huh. Sutherland, yeah, I think, is in name? it. Isn't Jeff Goldblum in that too? I think Jeff Goldblum's um, in that. I think he's he's your favorite maybe, actor. It, it, is he is he my favorite? He might be your favorite actor. Maybe he is my favorite actor. She was also in Terrence That's Malick's a possibility. nineteen from the same this same year, nineteen seventy eight film Days of Heaven, which you definitely haven't seen. You think Jeff Goldblum's your favorite actor? Um I don't know. I've never really tried to think of a favorite actor or actress, but I if he's not my favorite, he's definitely one of them. He has the distinction of being one of the uh, unconventionally attractive, offbeat, idiosyncratic, even male leads mm. in a David Cronenberg yeah, film. Yeah, in The Fly. I love The Fly. I do too. It's a great movie. Um, but he does kind of fit into that mold of weird dudes. Yeah. That Dave, it, who talk really strange? Who have a, who have a very a very really re- weird cadence yeah, to their voice? Distinct diction and cadence to their voice, yeah. uh, distinct rhythm to their speaking, and even more so, like an interesting uh, an interesting look about them. I said mm-hmm. unconventionally attractive because I yeah. don't think he I don't think he casts like patently unattractive people, right? But, but just they're, interesting they're looking people. Stra- I mean, Goldblum Man is weird. Like you got it with that hair. You know, and mullet. like <laughs> Brundle mullet. <laughs> he, he is a strange looking man, but but 
attractive question yeah. mark yeah yeah there's some certainly certainly but you think about all the actors that he's all the male leads that he's cast he's cast peter weller whose other most famous role which movie was this the naked lunch it was a naked lunch oh i don't think i've watched that one peter weller whose other most famous role uh, was as robocop where half of his face is covered uh, so yes. that should tell you something about you know <laughs> what at least paul verhoven thinks of his looks uh, you've also got Viggo Mortensen in mm. uh, in A History of Violence and, and Eastern and Promises. And he's one of those, too. Like, I know everybody, because he's in Lord of the Rings, everyone's like, oh, head mm-hmm. over heels for him. But he is kind of weird looking. Yeah. Like, he's not he normal, not traditional, attractive, of, right, right? exactly. Uh, you've got James Woods in Videodrome. And most recently, and say what you will about his work in the Twilight Films. I have a, I have trouble calling them films. That that should tell you something about them. Um, <laughs> the Twilight motion pictures. Mm. Uh, Robert Pattinson. Y- you mean masterpieces, right? That's what uh, you were. Yes, that's, that's the word that's you the were word looking, I was for. looking for. Uh, but Robert Pattinson, I think he fits that that description. Yeah, he does. He's no doubt. He's an attractive looking guy. He has. I mean. Ah, uh, so next Cronenberg's going to start casting. Doctor Who actors, right? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> the Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh my gosh! Benedict and, Cumberbatch and, and, is going to be the next. J- David what's his name? Heddle, Heddle, Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, Tom yeah. Hiddleston and David Cronenberg. All the all the Tumblr. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, the darlings. British actors. Yeah, all the Tumblr darlings. Yeah, because they're all kind of unconventional. Yeah, like if you saw them on the street, you'd be like, uh-huh. uh-huh. If Alan Rickman what? were younger. Uh-huh. Maybe Alan Rickman if he were younger. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really hilarious. <laughs> Genuinely hilarious. Bravo. Thank you. Um, something that, uh, another thing we didn't mention the first time through uh, was it the the roller coaster scene or mm. at the theme park. In the he- novel, he actually plays a Wheel of Fortune game that he wins continuously. Oh, really? Um, and the novel actually starts and kind of gives you a hint that he's going to have the power that he ends up having. Right, because much, we get that earlier. scene with him as a child, right? When he's, he's playing hockey, mm. which is also was, was actually a deleted scene, as I understand it, from the movie. They shot it and completed it, but it ended up discarded or on the cutting room floor. Um, but it, that scene is also reflected later on in the in the hockey scene that he saves a young boy uh, from, like the, the right. ice breaking because the, the ice, ice is gonna, gonna break, break. <laughs> yeah um it, it, no but when in the book he he falls or something he slips or something he hits his head so, and and he doesn't he doesn't go into a coma but he blacks out maybe or he just has like he's disoriented or something and he stutters uh don't jump it again or something about yeah like that, that sounds right and we haven't read the book no. but this is all stuff that we've read, read on... about the book sure Wikipedia is our friend. Ah, uh, yes, Wikipedia. Um, so and then like the person he says it to gets shocked while jumping a car later, or something, something like that. Anyways, we get an indication that he is going to have some kind of, or he has the potential for some kind of supernatural psychic powers later in life. Um. Now here we've got the mom. You have some strong opinions about this mother. What that her performance is awful. Yeah, and I'm not a fan. She's very. She feel as over the top as the two ostensible leads in the movie, which would be 
Martin Sheen, who comes up only in the last, like, we only see him for the first time over an Martin hour Sheen into the movie. Martin Sheen is the... He plays the politician Greg Stilson. Stilson, okay. In the books, again, that that's, he's, from the very get-go, he's... Yeah, the books tell a parallel story of Stilson and Johnny Smith, Christopher Walken's character. Until they converge from and... From childhood or from, or from their early life until they converge later in life and mm. their paths kind of cross. Um... But the the two ostensible leads kind of Martin Sheen very much so choose scenery. He's very hammy, very over the top, and very very likable. I think that I love his performance. Actually, I think he does a great great job. Um, and Christopher Walken is very very Christopher Walken, and which is great for this movie because I think that they should stand out, and they do. They seem like they well, he's not totally Christopher Walken yet. No, but he's he's right now he's about forty forty percent thirty thirty five forty percent Christopher Walken. Yeah. Um, this is maybe one of my favorite scenes from this movie. Oh, it's great. With the fire. where It's his first vision. This is his first vision. Where the room he's in is on fire because he's holding the hand of a nurse and he's seeing her daughter uh, trapped inside her house, which is on fire. Um, I love it. I love the bed on fire where he's laying. That's it, it, fantastic. I mean, it just goes to show, like it's it's kind of terrifying and weird and and just like so he looks strange like he's watch. the wrong size for the bed because it's a little girl's bed. Like it's really oh the, the fishbowl fish bubbling. And, yeah. yeah, that's great. It's wonderful. That poor fish. Oh. <laughs> oh no, we cooked him. Delicious goldfish. <laughs> Hurry up! Boiled. I not, love that. Did you say grilled? No, I, did I say grilled? <laughs> I don't. I don't know cooking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the sweat on his face in that scene was actually a flame retardant chemical uh, that they, they didn't intend for it to look as dramatic as it does, but it does kind of give a nice effect with mm. him sitting in the bed and sweating. Yeah, it's nice. Um, also, they had to shoot that scene twice, and that's not the kind of scene that you want to have to shoot mm, twice. That's yeah. kind of like a one and done deal. Like, let's get it right the first time. There was apparently an ET doll. On the shelf, and uh-huh. Universal Studios was like, no, no, none of that now. For real? And they were going to sue. Well, what yeah. were they upset about? I don't know. What What are movie studios ever ever upset well, about? I mean, They're really? going to stick in their ass what's about gonna, whatever. What's going to happen? Someone's going to think that... Intellectual property rights. I don't know. It's a it's a weird, sticky world of intellectual stupid. property rights and, and shit it's like dumb. that. It should be advertising. If I see an E.T. doll, I think of E.T. and then I want to watch E.T. Something that was here we get we get you know it's interesting these visions happen so fast in the beginning of this movie here we're only what fifteen minutes in twenty minutes in yeah they do not even and we've got this the second vision already oh it's the second scene second scene in a in a row that's a great that's a great line that was actually our uh, our our quote teaser quote for this episode if you could if you could guess that we were going to do the dead zone based on the quote the wolf is loose then you're a true dead zone fan and you are one of us. Um, this is a scene where he's, he's got, grabbed his doctor's hand. The doctor's name is Sam Wiesack, 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 Wiesack. I think he says Wiesack. That's how he pronounces it. And it's a scene of war. It's supposed to be World War II Poland, as I understand it. And this is, uh, Wiesack and his mother escaping, or Wiesack rather, escaping, uh, Poland during the Nazi occupation. And, uh, Johnny, uh, discovers that through this vision that Wiesak's mother is actually still alive, even though she was suspected to have died in mm. the war. Um, now, 
something that's interesting about this scene and also um, a scene later on with, with Martin Sheen's character in some of the scenes and some of the, the, uh, the premonitions and the visions that Johnny has, he's actually a bystander. So the first vision that we saw, he was in the bed. He was in right, the room right. with he the girl. Actually, which, he was in her bed specifically. Which could be an artistic choice, but it also could be, um, you know, a, a, an actual maybe a pragmatic choice, a practical choice, like to have mm-hmm. him in the room as a as a bystander and feeling kind of helpless in the face of the things that are happening. Um. But the interest, most interesting thing about the first vision is that it's the only one that happens in the movie that doesn't actually in the, involve the person that he's getting the vision from. Well, how does he know? I mean, but but in this vision right here, he's talking about. He's talking about he. Okay, he's touching the boy, and the the vision he saw was of the boy escaping the Poland. boy escaping but he's he's giving him information that 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 boy the child and this adult man who he's touching could not know right of course i i, I think that that you know you can suspend your dis- disbelief so far as to believe that he could get that information i think as long, has... i think the rules are that as long as there is like some slight connection through the person like you know if it's their family or a loved one or someone that they're connected to i feel like that that's enough. The interesting thing about the first vision, though, to me, is that in all of the other visions, those people are there in the visions themselves. The people that he's touching, at least they, are in the visions themselves. Um, in the first scene where he touches the nurse, he sees her daughter. She's not anywhere near there. And that's happening at that moment. He tells her to go and he says, hurry up, you know, in a wonderful delivery. <laughs> I love, I love his delivery. Anytime you can get Christopher Walken screaming, gold. Solid yeah, yeah, gold. True, true. Uh, but it's the only one that doesn't actually directly involve the person he's touching. Now, whether or not he's a helpless bystander seems kind of random in the movie. Like, sometimes he, he was in the first one. He's not in the second when, one. When is he again? Which one is he? He is in the, in the scene where he's he touches the... the the murder victim mm-hmm. in the gazebo, mm-hmm. and he sees her basically from her perspective, the murder of herself. You know, he, she, he sees the murderer come up to the gazebo. He comes up there and you know, you know, rips off her top and kills her. And uh, he's standing there, like he's standing there, and he's a bystander, and he can't do anything. He he actually says something about. It. He says, "I did nothing. I did nothing." Again, great performance. Mm. <laughs> um, and then the. He's a bystander maybe one in one other one other scene. Oh, maybe not. Maybe not. I think those are the only two. So he's a he's in the first vision so with the burning room. Sometimes he's like physically there and sometimes, sometimes he's physically not. there and sometimes he's not. But in an there's a scene with Martin Sheen later on and again our philosophy on spoilers um we we said this last time you shouldn't be listening to this if you haven't seen the movie so just expect spoilers or all the way through care. this. Or if you don't care, sure. There's a scene later on where Martin Sheen's character, as the future president of the United States, orders uh, nuclear bombs to be dropped on some unnamed country. In the book, I think it's Russia. Uh, and in the scene in the movie, Christopher Walken's apparition or his, you know, hit, as a helpless bystander, he's nowhere around. He's just seeing these things happen. Mm-hmm. But there was an alternate version for the movie where he's actually there as a helpless bystander, much like when he watches the girl get murdered and as he's in the bed in the burning room with the girl. Um, 
it doesn't affect my enjoyment of the movie. It's a it's a it, the weird kind of weird inconsistencies. Like I know that depending on the movie, depending on how important it is to supporting the theme of a movie, whether or not it's considered a motif of the theme, uh, really affects my enjoyment of a movie. Uh, whether or not it's inconsistent, it doesn't really affect my enjoyment but here. I don't. I, I, don't I think know. I it, feel like we're dwelling on this too long, but I are, don't feel. <laughs> I don't feel like it's that. I don't feel like it's inconsistent, though. I don't like you're saying that that the mother that he's touching the mother and he's getting a vision about the daughter, and but I don't see how that's different from touching the son and getting a vision about the mother. But the son was there. Yes, but he wasn't there to see her escape and to know no, where she lives true. in the future. That's true, but at least he was and there. And he said he knows where she lives now. He knows her name sure, and he sure. knows where no, she no, lives. You're right, you're right, you're right. So, It's anyways. a stretch either which way. Yes, so sure. he can see the present and we've seen him now see the past. And then he's going to see the future later. So he is Bran. Stark. <sighs> From Game of Thrones. If you've got to take it there. I do. Obviously. Then by all means, take it to Game of Thrones. Thank you. I will. I did. Uh, So we get to see Sarah. Sarah's in this scene. And she's cut her hair. So now she is transformed before our very eyes (laughs) from a poor man's Karen Allen to a poor man's Shirley MacLaine from The Apartment. (laughs) Is that unfair? This poor actress. I, she does a fine job. I think she is... She's cute! Well, beyond that, I think her performance is fine. It's just fine. She's, yeah. She does a fine job in this movie. She, she does. Fine. She does what yeah, she's she supposed to do. she does kind of look do. like the girl from the apartment. She now, does look like Shirley McLean from the apartment. Not, not as cute. cute. Not as cute. I, that I don't girl think, is so cute in that movie. I don't think Shirley McLean gets the, the recognition... That she should for being what she is in that movie, and that is the very first manic pixie dream girl. Ah, true, true. And she was that many, many years Tries before. Tries to suicide by taking a bunch of sleeping pills. Yes, very dramatic, uh, very, very idiosyncratic, and and her, in, of course, thanks to Billy Wilder's script. Uh, you know, she, <laughs> she's she's got very quippy, clever things to say all the time. But that's everybody in a Billy Wilder movie. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, that's part of the charm. Uh, but she she was that thing years before there was ever a word for it, and certainly years before Natalie Portman ruined mm, it in, mm, in Garden mm-hmm. State. Yeah. Mm. And years before Chloe Deschanel, or Chloe, <sighs> Zoe? Zoe Deschanel? Zoe Whatever. Deschanel made a career out of it. Sure. Fine. Why am I so, so afraid of being unfair to actresses? I feel like that was an unfair statement. I um, don't think so. You don't think so? You're not a fan of no, Zoe Deschanel? No, not really. Hmm. Not really at all. So you can see in in this moment that Sarah's very upset, as she should be. Like she just she just met up with her lover from years ago. Oh, and we didn't we, we didn't mention it, but in the scene where Johnny's parents come and tell him that he has been in a coma for five years. Hmm. Have we even said that much? I think we 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 dwelt too much on the world building yeah, and the right. rules of this science fiction fantasy thing. Um, so yeah, he's been in a coma for five years. His parents said that. And part of the reason I don't like his mother's performance is her really antiquated speaking style. Uh, yeah. She's really stilted. She tells him, 
she informs him that Sarah has been married. She married another man. And she says it by saying that she cleaves, cleaves? to another man. <laughs> Who says that? Oh, nobody. I want you to look Except at, for this I want you to look at this, this room movie. of reporters and find the asshole. Ah, I'm going to guess. May, now, I could be wrong, but maybe the guy who slouched down in his chair with the leather jacket. <laughs> the leather blazer? Right. <laughs> and then, like, leans forward. You'd be right. Oh, okay. You'd be right. Wow. Yes, he... Gosh, how did I guess that? He is the asshole, and we, this is the first mention that we get of Greg Stilson, and uh, Johnny does, has no idea who Greg Stilson is, obviously, because he's been in a coma for five years. Right. Um, but Greg Stilson ends up being kind of the main antagonist, but I, I don't really think it's a man versus man story. I think this is really a man versus himself. Then what's what's story. Uh, what's what what is so Johnny is our protagonist. He's our protagonist. So what's the antagonist? Johnny. Then? Johnny is Johnny's antagonist. Well, I mean, you know the the what is it? The three types of story no, is no, I, I, man versus man, man versus environment, man versus himself, and I think man versus machine versus is one of them. Man. I think this is man versus himself. Really? Yeah, I think so. Okay. What well, do do you not see that? Because I mean, Man versus we himself. we've said this before, but the character of Greg Stilson, played by Martin Sheen, doesn't actually appear in the film until more than an hour into it, and the conflict between Stilson and um, and Smith, Johnny Smith, played by Christopher Walken appears and is resolved over the course of three scenes. He shakes his hand at a political rally. He talks to Dr. Wiesak about the morality of... He, he, puts, he frames it in, in the terms of whether or not Wiesak would have killed Hitler if he had the chance. Mm. Wiesak says, of yeah. course he would have. And then in the, in the last scene, he plots to assassinate Stilson, but it doesn't actually go that way. But the, the conflict is resolved. I think if you have a conflict that that only you know crops up and is resolved over the course of three scenes that take no more than no more than fifteen or twenty minutes of screen time, I don't think that's your core conflict. I think the conflict is, is Johnny dealing with this thing that okay. he's got. Do you I not mean, agree? No, no, I agree. It, it's it's him dealing with this thing and having to come to terms with it, and and also you know as as we will talk about more later the. Uh, he's he's a savior. He saves the world. He's a martyr. He we've got a lot of religious themes going through this movie. So clearly we've got like some messianic sort of I mean, it's it's a little imagery going on. And so so that story, if we're pulling from that story, then we're definitely talking about man versus himself because versus him trying to decide. He's killing himself. He's killing himself by using these powers, and he's trying yeah, to decide we, whether we or not to he's going to keep doing yeah, that. Absolutely, and I, I think that it even gets a little bit meta as far as like film technique goes. It goes that deep because Cronenberg loves to shoot Christopher Walken in this movie from what is called a god shot, mm. and the god shot is a low angle shot that makes your character look big it makes like them look yeah like a god exactly makes them look big makes them look powerful makes them look intimidating or iconic and i think that all the things that christopher walken is not just how he looks how his crazy his hair is the fact that he wears the same black pea coat and he ends up wearing black pants with it and he pops the collar on it and he he's walking around with the cane and he's limping around 
he's a very iconic figure to me. Yeah, with his, you know, jello mold hair and and with his jello mold hair. <laughs> and I think that uh his name is even his his name even kind of points to how iconic he is and how ironically plain yeah, it is. Yeah. His name is Johnny, Johnny Smith. Smith. It's the plainest name that you can yeah. pop, but besides like John Doe or John Smith, it's the, pl- I mean, it is, it's John Smith. He yeah. is John Smith. They call him Johnny. Um, and Didn't you say Cronenberg hated it? Cronenberg hated the name. He wanted to change the name because Cronenberg would never name one of his characters John Smith or Johnny Smith. You know, he has a, his character from The Fly just off of my head is, top of my head is named Brundle. His last name is Brundle. <laughs> what? <laughs> there, I don't think anyone's ever been named Brundle ever. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's the kind of character that Cronenberg would create, but Stephen King created this character. And I think that Cronenberg putting his, you know, Casting Christopher Walken and allowing him to to inject his idiosync- idiosyncrasies into it with the name Johnny Smith is ironically uniconic, which points to the character actually being very very symbolic in mm. in 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 this story and very out of this world and maybe he doesn't belong here and he's special here like we were talking about his performance and Martin Sheen's performance Martin Sheen being more on the scenery chewing side of you know things. Um, but yeah, he certainly is kind of a messianic figure, a savior yeah. figure. He's yeah. a martyr. So, so if we're talking about, you know, what, what the, what the antagonist is in, in that story, if we're looking at it from that perspective, then, then I guess it is dealing with your own issues and, and trying to come to terms with what you have to do and deciding if what you have to do is what you're going to do. By the I, way, the I mean, Christmas you- tree in this scene looks super janky. Did the the father that? actually mentions that it's it's a little sad, but he says something like that he can could never do the tinsel right. He can't do the tinsel right without his wife, who has ah. just died in a previous scene. Uh-huh, yeah, okay. Now she I... died very very over dramatically, <laughs> and I think the movie's better for having gotten rid of her. <laughs> uh, why was she there in the first place then? I don't know. I don't know. I think if if you look at the the father in the scene where she has a stroke, there's a look on his face like finally. Oh yes. Jesus. <laughs> Thank it's you. It's over. Except now my Christmas trees are going to look like Duke forever. <laughs> Speaking of God, Tom Skerritt, aka Dallas from Alien, <laughs> uh, has just mentioned God having given Johnny a gift. Oh, and- Christopher Walken's yelling. Oh. Solid gold yes. just spilling out of his mouth. Do you hear it? It's a beautiful thing. Um, but this is yelling and stuttering. Also, this is a uh, his character's rejection of religion hmm. in this moment right here, where he's right yelling. here in this moment. And you you get the fee- and I think this ties directly in. This almost feels causal uh, in a, in a weird way of the next scene that happens. Um, and we'll get when it gets comes up. I'll I'll mention it again, but. Earlier in the film, we saw that he wanted to wait to have sex with his girlfriend. Mm, he wanted to wait right. to have sex with Sarah. Um, and I think that in in you know American culture, you can basically always tie that to some kind of religious restriction or religious I think, ideology. I think a lot of the time. A lot of the time, sure. I, I don't want to. I certainly don't want to generalize. No. Um, but I think that is. 
that was definitely where his character was going. I think that it's confirmed with how religious his mother his seems mother to be. We've even got like religious symbols on the like the plaque and stuff on the wall and right, exactly in the house. Um, and the fact that someone who uh, is yelling about God that much clearly had to have been someone that at least at some point believed in God because otherwise you wouldn't be so upset about him. Exactly. Not helping you out. Yeah, exactly. If you didn't feel betrayed, then you wouldn't have any need to get that upset. Right. But, Oh yeah, this is the the moment where, Oh, your mother, your mother always kept the tree. I'm a jerk for saying that you are, you're a total, you're you're as much of an asshole as, um, as as the reporter, leather blazer reporter. I don't think that's a fair comparison. Is it not? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, I don't think that this, I feel like, and, and you can call me out for it, because as soon as you mention his name, you have to say something nice about somebody. <laughs> what? But um, <laughs> Sheriff Bannerman, played by Dallas from Alien, uh, offers this, you know, serial rapist murderer case to Johnny because they're kind of, mm-hmm. as a last ditch effort, they've tried everything they can. They don't know where to go from here. And um, Johnny you could say turns down the call to adventure from what are you are you bringing up joseph campbell oh you said again? it now, now you said his name you have to say Why? something nice about somebody when did this when did this rule come up you, you don't know the rule i i really i made it up oh okay. i made up the rule but if you mention that guy uh-huh then you have to say something nice about somebody no, I don't. Yes, you you just said his name. I didn't say his name. You said his name. You have to mention you have to say something Your nice beard about somebody. Is this is very that's, well trimmed. That's the same thing you said last time. <laughs> you have to say something nice about someone else that's not me and not about my magnificent beard. Oh. It was my brother's birthday and he's a nice guy. Okay. That's good. Just keep that in mind the next time you think about mentioning the guy that you mentioned. Okay. He who shall not be named. <laughs> I don't see why this Because it's the deal. rule. You don't understand. It's a stupid rule. His little symbolic gesture right here I think is nice where he hangs up the cane to go meet Sarah outside. He doesn't want to appear weak. But he has popped the collar. He's about 55% walking. Oh, good. We're going up. We're going up in our... Walking percentages. And his, oh, he's, he's got the hair. He's his, got his the hair, His hair. hair is full on David Cronenberg yeah. right now. So True. He has made the transformation from Stephen King to David Cronenberg, mm-hmm. at least. Yeah. Um, you know. Have we talked about the accident yet? I we haven't. We Do you have. want to talk about it? Okay, yeah, let's Bring talk about that. So I don't know a lot about... I like Cronenberg. I like... This is not my favorite Cronenberg movie. My favorite Cronenberg movie is maybe The Brood. The, the great movie in followed its Followed right. by... Either the fly or Videodrome, probably. Okay. Um, I've seen oh, a, all great I've seen movies. a lot of Cronenberg movies because of you, even some obscure ones uh, like the Shivers, right? The yeah. one in the apartment the one about all the, the horny zombies. Yeah, they're yeah. yeah. Uh huh. So I like Cronenberg, but it's obvious why I like Cronenberg because he kind of falls into the horror genre a lot. Um, this movie, however, I don't know. It's more like psychological thriller to me. Than horror, sure. It's kind of supernatural, psychological. Yeah, and it's sure. just—I mean, it's there enough that, like, like it's on the fringe of what I like enough that I like it. But it's a little too keyed down for me. If I'm going to watch a Cronenberg movie, I kind of want it to be a little more disgusting and gory and sure. But even messed up looking, I like his body horror stuff. Well, he. Uh, I- 
I've said this before. I've heard I've heard him call this before. He is kind of the master of body horror. This isn't really a horror film, though. Right, he, like right. you said. And like I said, the reason I like Cronenberg is because I, I like his horror stuff. What he what he does with horror is wonderful. I lo- of course I love the things that he does with horror, and I think that you could call. Whereas the fly is very much on the horror side of things, and this is very much on the psychological thriller side of things, I think Videodrome is kind of in the middle there. Like it, it has the horror elements, but it also has the psychological thriller and drama mm. elements to it. Um, the thing that I love about Cronenberg, and the thing that makes me a huge fan of him as a filmmaker and as an as an artist, is that. He doesn't shy away from showing you what he intends to show you, but he he doesn't embellish upon it either. Everything that he shoots is very matter-of-fact. Mm. It is presented at face value. It is what it is. And it is so apparent that he's doing the, it that way that it doesn't come across as boring or artless, which I think that in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, that kind of aesthetic choice or that aesthetic uh, 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 manifesto, if you will, kind of the, the decision to do that, that uh, the dogmatic decision, if you will, because all of his films look the same. They all have a visual style, just like Martin Scorsese. You can pick out a Martin Scorsese film by just watching it. You can pick out a Steven Spielberg film just by watching it. And you can do the same thing with a David Cronenberg film. And it's all it's kind in of how... Because of the lack that there is in... Because of the lack of style. frills and bells and yeah, like whatever. His lack of style is his style but it is not an artless lack of style. You can you can see Cronenberg in his movies and I think that's you know, I think every great auteur that is that is true of. Anyways, what I was saying is that unlike you just proved yourself to uh to have a lot of knowledge about Cronenberg, I I do not have a lot of knowledge about Cronenberg. Correct. Um I just like a couple of his movies. Uh, however, I do know some things about Stephen King because I like Stephen King. I see. And um, I I have not read The Dead Zone. Um, I haven't either. I've heard it's really long. Yeah. But this isn't one that I would go to again because it's if I'm going to Stephen King, then I'm going to go to Stephen King for, you know. The Stand. Pet Cemetery and Cujo. The Dark and, Tower. And Carrie. And, right. Like So anyways, uh, it's... Info about Stephen King with car accidents. I, oh, yeah. I heard something about this. Okay. So this Break book it down. was written in 79. Okay. Uh, or it was dead. published in 79. Yeah. Right. Published in 79. Um, in 1999, however, Stephen King had a very serious car accident. And this car accident was so bad that he almost went into retirement um, he, he had like, uh, one of his lungs was crushed. I think he had a lot of broken bones, including a leg, which was shattered so badly that they almost amputated it. Um, wow. so, so, and he was, how the accident happened is he was just walking down the road in Maine where he lives and he got hit by an, he lives on- in Maine. You don't say. <laughs> I would have no idea by from the loca- all, yes. locales of of we'll talk about that a all the bit books now. ever written. Anyway, so and he got hit by a van, but it's just it's interesting how you could have fooled me that these books were written before 
his accident rather than after because he has so many books which have car accidents as a a major turning point in someone's life. Now, granted, car accidents are like the go-to cliche, I don't know what accident. Well, a lot of people have car accidents, so, you know, it's the go-to for that. So I don't think it's that weird that he has car accidents in his books. It's just... It's just kind of interesting that, you know, there are so many similarities to him in this character's life. Like, like we talked about him being an English teacher. Um, he looks like Stephen King at the beginning of the movie. And he has a car accident, which changes him. And so this character, yeah, this character uh, has a car accident, which affects his, how he walks. Affects how he walks. Um, but not only that, but he has other characters in his in his uh, works. Yes, so like in Misery, yeah. which is the one that really freaks me out because, and Misery was written written in. Um, this is my favorite shot of the entire movie, and maybe my favorite shot in any movie ever. Yeah, the it's tunnel really right fantastic. here. It's amazing. The light coming off the walls and stuff. It is just amazing. And you said they sprayed down the walls with water. I think they did. This and shot. this movie was shot during a really like a historic freeze in this area. This was shot in Ontario, Canada, mm. uh, near Niagara Falls. And um, it was shot during a historic freeze. So very, very cold. And so they had all this ice all Imagine the they just sprayed and... the walls and it just froze and created this amazing reflective surface for the, the movie lights that are just probably yeah, just really outside and beautiful. The, the tunnel. Um, uh, we'll go ahead and talk about the tunnel and then we'll come back. We'll come back to Misery. Okay. Uh, this tunnel is actually has a nickname. It's called the Screaming Tunnel. Uh, and it's in Niagara Falls, Ontario, uh, in, in Canada. And there are a couple of local legends uh, surrounding the tunnel, one of which uh, says that it's haunted by a, the ghost of a young girl who, uh, after escaping a nearby burning farm, uh, enters the tunnel and dies inside it. Um, several There are also several variants of the legend, uh, one version of which has the girl set on fire by her enraged father after he loses custody of his children after a nasty divorce. Another tells of a girl being raped inside the tunnel and her body burned to prevent any evidence from being found. Uh, but all of the variants involve, they have one similarity, and that is if you strike a match within the tunnel's walls, it will produce the sound of the young girl's dying screams, which is where it gets his name, the Screaming and, Tunnel. And we've got, obviously, they're making a reference to the history of this tunnel because we've found a pack of cigarettes in this right, tunnel. where so. the sheriff said that the serial killer was waiting for a young girl, and she, the, the, a high school girl, mm-hmm. and she comes in and they found a bunch of cigarette butts, which they don't say matches. So we've got young girl screams, nose. and we've got something being lit, possibly by a match. Exactly. It's um, nice. It's nice. It's, it's nice very aware allusion to, to local legend. Local lore, yeah. Sure, absolutely. That's fun. That's really fun. And also, this tunnel is fantastic. I am pretty sure I have... I Where was it? Uh, I think it was in Gunma a few months ago. I went on a tour up to Gunma. Mm-hmm. You didn't come with me. I did not. And we walked through a really long, dark tunnel. We didn't go all the way through, but it used to be a train tunnel that's not used now. And... It kind of reminded me of that. It was really haunting. Um, uh, and we didn't talk about it, but this character is very possibly based, at least in some ways, on a real-life person. That's true. A yes. self-proclaimed psychic named Peter Herkos. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
so this psychic, I guess he fell off of a ladder and had a head injury. Okay. Like Doc Brown in Back to the Future? Did he, sure. Did he invent the flux capacitor? He did not. Um, okay. What he did is he apparently got psychic abilities after falling off the ladder. Ah, oh, the second best thing. Right. To the flux capacitor. Yes, second best thing to flux. But there wasn't, did Doc Brown hit his head on a toilet or something? Something like that, the edge of a sink. He was hanging a clock. And so, he slipped and hit his head on the sink. And when he came to, he had a vision. A vision in his head. A picture of this. I'm sorry. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he, he became a self-proclaimed psychic, which, and he was a special kind of psychic. Um, he, he practiced, um, I don't know how to pronounce it, maybe psychometry. Okay. He was a psychometric psychic or something like that. Basically, it just means you touch things that belong to people and you get a vision. Oh, kind of like what, what what Johnny does in the movie. Right. But Johnny touches people. And that's this right. guy touches... Actually, they, they make a point. They just made a point that right, he was that's touching what the was pack of cigarettes. The cigarettes. Yes. He didn't get a vision off of the cigarettes. He held the pack. Oh, this right here. Johnny reacting and having the... the, the he, when he we're in recoils... The, we're in the gazebo right now. Right, and, we're in the gazebo. When he recoils and has these these uh, these visions, that's actually Cronenberg firing a three fifty seven Magnum <laughs> full of blanks just off camera. <laughs> Which is such like a crazy director thing to do. Yeah, uh, it's oh. interesting though because it's it, as I understand it, it was Christopher Walken's idea for him to do that, and Cronenberg's like, sure, why the hell not? Uh, but I think Christopher Walken probably we've mentioned the apartment already. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know Shirley MacLaine. Uh, I think Christopher Walken probably got that idea from a legend about Billy Wilder on the set of the apartment, where there's a scene in the apartment where uh, Shirley MacLaine's character's brother-in-law comes to the apartment and finds uh her character you know in jack lemon's character's apartment and he gets upset and he punches jack lemon and she reacts and she recoils and you know she has shock on her face and apparently the legend goes is off camera uh uh billy wilder the director was he smacked together uh two two by fours Mm. to get a genuine reaction out of her right so why wouldn't you up the ante if you're Christopher fucking Walken right. and David fucking Cronenberg. Right. So of course you got to shoot. You got to shoot a fucking hand cannon. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. So this is one of the one of the visions where he's actually present. Yes, this is one of you know, two and, that we see in the movie. Three that were actually planned. Like as I understand it, that that version of the scene at Camp David later with Martin Sheen's character, where he fires the missiles. Mm. I think they actually shot it, but they edited it in such a way that, that they, that they he was cut him out of it, it, maybe? maybe yeah. Why'd they take him out of it? I kind of like it when he's there. Is oh, we got, a, some, we got some boobies we did here. Some, is this our first movie with boobies? Um, maybe. I think this is our first movie with boobies. Oh, this is a historic moment. For the popcorn poops. Popcorn, really? Have popcorn we not boobs. had any boobies yet? I, I don't think so. First boobs. First movie boobs. Movie Yay, boobs are the best boobs. movie boobs. Great. But uh, <laughs> what were you saying about about uh, Stephen King? Uh, no, no. Before though, I was talking about the cigarettes though, and I just wanted to make the point that he he clearly he clearly does not practice psychometry or psych psychometric. No, because psych- he has to psychic. touch the person, even yeah. if they're dead. And they made that they made that very clear, and I just think that's interesting because it's. 
it's a possibility that this character was at least loosely based on this real life person, but they make that distinction where, where they say, but he's different, at least in this, you know, major way right here. I don't know. It almost, almost seems like kind of making fun of the other guy a little bit, the Peter, uh, whatever his name is, Herkos guy, because it's like, no, not a, not a pack of cigarettes or a, wallet you have to touch the person of course don't be silly yeah um what were you saying about about stephen king earlier misery and all that stuff no well what i was what i was talking about is just that um it's creepy that this book was written so long before his car accident when there are so many parallels to to him at least in the the movie also because this movie also was made many many years before his car accident and they yes of course he wrote the story but like they even make a point to make Christopher Walken look Looks like Stephen, like Stephen King, King in the first part of the movie and then he has a car right, accident which affects his walking as as a guess i would say this movie is maybe a little creepier than than the book itself even in those mm, parallels yeah. but but anyways the one that really freaks me out is misery because because misery is about an author where and and if you don't know in 90 Eight, I think it was in 98, Bag of Bones came out. And Bag of Bones was the first book that Stephen King edited himself. As I understand it. Right? Yeah, I've, I've heard that. Um, yeah. So he was kind of making a change in the way he wrote, in the way he was marketing his stuff. Like, he was changing his writing very drastically. And, um, and I mean, firing an editor, an editor would do that. So, so in Misery, we've got a guy, an author, who... We've got an author who is wrapping up his series that his romance series that he's had going on for however long and he kills off the character in the end and he wants to get into like mainstream novels and he writes something called Fast Cars or something. I don't know, whatever. But, But then he has a car accident where he shatters his leg and and so a crazy weird. woman gets upset and you know how that goes with the a, hammer and the foot and so on and so forth but um it's like he predicted all like it's it's right? it's, kind of, it's weirdly prescient it's weird. i have a question for you is stephen king a wizard um why not okay sure he's a wizard we'll go there we're about to see the one moment in this movie which makes this movie uh, very uh, distinctly David Cronenberg. Very distinctly David Cronenberg, and which pushes it into that that fringe of horror that, for me, then says, "Ah, oh, okay, this is this is a Jessica-ish yeah, movie." Close enough to horror that. Right. So he sets up the the killer. Oh they've, God, they, it's awful! They found the killer whose weapon of choice is scissors. Scissors, and not you know like good good old sharp and scissors, he's locked but like himself the kind in the that bathroom. pinch. Exactly, locked himself in the bathroom, <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the bathtub with a big rubber coat on, and he's set up the scissors like open, like so. There's two blades sticking out, and like propped it against stuff on the bathtub, yeah, so that he can like put his hands behind his head and smack his face open mouth into the scissor blades and kill himself right so it'll the go mo- up like, like the into most, the soft palate like on the roof of his mouth it's you like know the my- most inefficient way of killing yourself what D- it's it's really terrible but you remember my little brother had a 
a terrible oh yeah almost uh, injury with the soft palate on the it was a recorder not a pair of scissors didn't the doctor God. say something like if you penetrate the soft palate then you'll bleed out um I don't know like about that? that but I know that if like the recorder had gone up any farther then he would have died oh my instantly. God. and and yeah that was a traumatic moment in my oh, childhood oh it's so gross it's so gross oh it is <sighs> We didn't say anything about all of the reanimator green lighting in the house. Which yeah, the, we did all have of, reanimator all green. Of this stuff, not matrix green. Not matrix. We need to ma- clarify. Matrix green is a filter. Mm. Reanimator green is lighting. Green lighting. That's yes. right. Let's be specific here. Or any green glowing liquid. Sure. If there's any. See, imagery like of that, this hallway then. is reanimator green. Yes, reanimator green. We also mentioned reanimator green in Beetlejuice mm. in our commentary. Beetlegeist. Beetlejuice. Beetlegeist. <laughs> Oh man, that was really gross though. And I, I, I think that the and there's another there's a little squib. God bless squibs. Squib. A squib is the explosive blood pouch inside ah. that you know makes gunshot yes. wounds in movies. I am a hundred percent against CG blood. CG blood squibs. No, practical blood squib. No, practical why, everything. Why? Why? I don't understand with things like that. I get it if you've got something really difficult to do. I get wanting to use CG for it. But, I mean, on something like as easy as blood, you can make that stuff in your kitchen. So why sure. why would you CG something like that? I don't know. It's silly. And, and practical gore makeup is so easy. And it's so fun. Last The last thing about that house I want to mention is that I think it is the most uh, visually embellished chunk of the movie i think it's with all of the weird green lighting and all of the colors and like the weird blood you know like the the, even before they go into the house like there's this weird ominous glow coming out of the windows yeah there's a sense that something yeah something it's not green either it's it's orange they never go back to it though like that's that's the craziest the movie gets visually and i think it it and that is really to me the end of the second act if this is a three act um film as as many films are the end of the first act i think comes when he after he has sex with sarah which and we didn't mention that but she she gives him a little bit of a pity fuck Mm. um a mercy Mm -hmm. mercy jump if you will mercy mercy jump and um after that he's watching the sheriff on tv talking about the murders can you give a little bit of a fuck can you just the tip (laughs) (laughs) you set me up for that (laughs) When he makes the decision to to help the sheriff find the murderer, I think that's the end of Act One. I think that's the act break. When he finds the murderer, and then we get the rest of the movie uh, with you know Greg Stilson's going to come up, and it's basically the last half hour of the movie, something like that, last forty mm-hmm. minutes of the movie. I think that's all of Act Three. Um, so we've just had our act break, and we're officially in the third act, the last act of the film. Um, but now he's talking to Wezak again, and Wezak is is will mention that it looks like his power is is draining him. Mm. That you know he's been doing some research on you know, this strange ability that Johnny has, and he wants him to come back to the clinic. But Johnny doesn't want anything to do with it. He doesn't want to be on medication anymore. He just wants to be by himself. He wants to be alone, and he wants to teach the kids that he's got. He's a he's a tutor now. Yeah. And. Um, We'll see that. See, he says it here. No, no more pills. And yeah, I mean, uh, that, of course, all that stuff contributes to his 
his character and he's talking about how he's getting worse now. Yeah. It's draining him. It's literally <clears throat> using his powers is using them or just I don't know if he actively even tries to use them just having this you know bestowed upon him is is killing him. And I think that's a lot of what helps him make his decision by the end of this movie where he's just like I'm dying anyways. I'm dying anyways. The girl I love is in love with someone else is married to someone else has a baby. Why bother? Yeah. Yeah, no no no, you're absolutely right. Um in the book from what I've heard it was actually brain damage that is killing him like as he uses his powers that it's maybe a tumor is growing or something like that or it's irreversible brain damage mm. um so yeah there there is well, that sense of his imminent mortality you know they haven't they death. haven't talked about it yet they haven't openly said it but the dead zone is is to me i've always felt like it was a dead part of his brain yeah like like literally a dead zone in his head that 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 image at the beginning with the credit sequence where are not the credits but the um, so like like maybe the title card like they're black parts like you can't see it's gone it's not there it's sure. dead well m- much like you know they say that if you lose one of your senses the rest of them get stronger mm. so if you lose part of your you know brain capacity did do the other parts of your brain get stronger is that where his power comes so from what did like, he it's lose hard to say then, i'm not though. sure this is a this is kind of a powerful moment right here where he's showing Weezak, a closet full of letters with, he says, lost dogs, Aww. lost children, people who have died, from people who saw that he helped the police find mm. that killer, and they're asking for his help. And he can't he can't do anything for them. And he has to live with the fact that people are, are hurting out there, begging for his help, and he can't do anything for them. Until he can't. Until he does something that is a once and for sure final piece of closure for him in that he can do something that will literally save the world. He can save everyone in one fell swoop. Why doesn't he try to help these people? Why doesn't, why do you think he doesn't do that? I mean, if he's got, he just said it, he said that inside his house, he's safe. The one time that he went out and tried to help someone, he got shot. He got shot. Right. So, and he's not the character yet that he's going to be at the end of the movie, which is the guy who, realizes or decides i guess realizes is too strong Mm -hmm. to say about someone else but he decides that how he's going to use this has to be completely unselfish and it doesn't matter what happens to him the girl here uh was reading uh from sleeping beauty which is you know kind of apt Right, another right. another literary reference, you know, the fact that he was in a coma for right. for five years. Yeah, of course. Except that you know he does something in this movie, and Sleeping Beauty just is a protagonist sleeps. that sleeps for the entire time. Good, good, strong female characters to give our young young girls. <laughs> as they You're grow beating up. a dead horse. It's been it's been talked. Yeah, about I know. We've length. got other movies that are mediocre hey, to make up for it. The, the social justice warriors on Tumblr don't need any help. No, they don't, and neither neither does Maleficent. <laughs> that piece. I didn't see it. It wasn't that bad, but it was kind of like way too over top, over the top, like in the other direction. So here we've got. Um, 
we've got a character who has has come to ask Johnny to help tutor his uh, his son, who is very introverted and won't participate in school. And you know, Johnny makes some mention of of you know, uh, you know, the fact that he doesn't go out. Like he he doesn't go to other people's houses. He tutors inside the house. He doesn't operate like that. Uh, and you also get the 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 feeling that he he doesn't drive post accident. Like that's one of the things that mm. he just can't do. Like he can't really walk that well. He walks with the assistance of a cane. I don't know if he can't drive or if he just chooses not, chooses to, not to because of the accident. Mm. A fear of of driving. But whatever the case, the. The offer includes uh, having a car sent over for him to to the boy's house, and as soon as that happens, you get the you get the sense that the boy comes from a very wealthy family. Mm. Well, you can see right here. There's the car by looking at the car. Yeah, yeah. that's probably like a Rolls Royce or something, and he has a driver. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, and that's that's kind of the first time we get to see Greg Stilson's face, mm. or one of the first the- times. Billboard, mo- On the billboard mobile ju- mobile billboard yeah they're building a campaign poster just across the street from Johnny's new house because he's moved out of the house from his father who i guess uh probably was getting harassed by people after the whole So he Castle is living Rock here by thing. himself then Yeah that's and that's so so we're led to believe yes So at the end when when we see the plaque on the door the- it says J Smith private tutoring no, no, no. I'm talking oh, about the... back at, at his father's house. Oh, is that at his father's yes. house? Yes. Oh, okay. Never yeah, that, that comes up later. And this is actually, this is the first time we get to see uh, Martin Sheen as the politician running for Senate, Greg Stilson, with his, everyone in a leather jacket in this movie is an asshole. Mm, yeah. With his, yeah, that's like the bouncer guy, right? Yeah, like his the... heavy, his, uh, his henchman, if you will. <laughs> Probably just bodyguard, but... Um, yeah, he's spinning a spinning a a web of bullshit right now, as as politicians are prone to do. But there's there's a little interesting moment here, uh, this little diversion where uh, he doesn't it. get the vision because he gets a campaign button instead. That's right. So he holds out his hand to shake Stilson's hand. Stilson plants a campaign button in it and he doesn't get the skin to skin contact that seems to be necessary for the the uh the you know we got a, we got a little glance there from from his bodyguard from stilson's oh did we stilson's did you guy. see that? yeah he got a little glance that he gave to like you look like a weirdo mm, or like a hmm maybe he recognizes him we could guess that that he recognizes him as the guy who has those visions on TV, um, they, they they do, and we didn't talk about this before, but um, Stilson's character in the book started as a as a Bible, mm, yeah, door to door Bible they, salesman. And they don't do that here, which I I guess we didn't we didn't have. He hasn't been a part of this movie the way that he is in the books, right? Well, like so, we said in the book, the book is a parallel story that takes place from. When Johnny is very young and Stilson is very young. Or younger, at least. Younger, all the way up until their paths cross. So right. it's kind of two stories woven together toward the and end. And what we get in the books is we get this knowledge that I guess he was a Bible salesman. 
And I think that's kind of interesting, uh, only for the fact that Stephen King is... He's got a thing about about writing um, evil Bible salesmen. What else men, did he do to him? Men who peddle, peddle Bibles and are what actually really bad guys. Uh, maximum Overdrive. Oh, my God. What? Yeah. Yeah, you know you love it. <sighs> if you don't know Maximum Overdrive, then... Oh, I know <laughs> it. Then please... I wish I did Go get yourself... I think it's on Netflix right now. I think now, it is. So please go enjoy that. Um... It's Make sure you have lots of of alcohol or other inebriating items. Yeah, things, things that can get um, you messed up. Maximum Overdrive is a movie directed and written by Stephen King. It's based on his uh, short story Trucks from his first collection of short stories called Night Shift. Trucks. Trucks. <laughs> it's loose, loosely based on I it. always get this story mixed up with Christine, which no, is just Christine about a car. Christine is just about a car, okay. and I think the car is possessed by a girl or something like right. that or something like whatever or, or the car is just evil or whatever but this this story is about at least in maximum overdrive i think i read trucks when i was a kid my mom was really into stephen king and she had a bunch of hard cover copies on the shelves um and i think i read trucks but i don't remember anyways in maximum overdrive all of the machines in the world turn evil against humans and they have like a consciousness and so you've got lawnmowers like chasing down puppies and killing them and <laughs> and soda can machines it was really over the top <laughs> shooting pepsi at people's groins i tried and to heads watch that movie with you, but i fell asleep because it was just too dumb to stay i don't understand for. how you fell asleep in the middle of a movie with a score by acdc <sighs> it was easier than you think that is that is as as i understand it the the album that came out for that movie is the first time that Hell's Bells and um, You Shook Me All Night Long were released. What about Highway to Hell? That seems like the obvious one. I don't know. Like Highway, like a thing that trucks drive on. No? I don't know. It, it Maybe it, that was on a... Damn album it. after okay. before I don't know I'm, I'm disappointed I don't really know that much about ACDC and ACDC and Stephen <laughs> King and just everyone anyways um, this was Stephen King's masterpiece we all know <laughs> I guess if it's directorial debut film. to his credit he calls it the move it a moron movie and says that he was coked out of his mind and had no idea what he was doing while filming it. Yeah, well, you could say the same thing about Brian De Palma, and he made Scarface. Stephen King promised not to make any more movies. Thank you for that. <laughs> At least he's a considerate man. Um, but but getting back on track, there is a Bible salesman in that movie. I don't know if the short story has Bible salesman. I don't remember. But in Maximum Overdrive, there's a Bible salesman who picks up a girl who's a hitchhiker, and he tries to grope her in the car. And she gets out of the car, and then he gets killed by one of the evil trucks or something. Hmm. Anyways, right. so yeah, Bible salesmen are evil in Stephen King's world. Well, I mean, and, and religion, obviously we've talked about religion in this movie, and Christianity in particular has a place in this movie. We've talked about Johnny as kind of a Christ metaphor, um, and that does become a lot more apparent later on when he actually is a martyr and actually does like literally save the world. Hmm. Um, but then you've got Stilson as kind of the false, uh, false Christ, the Antichrist, if you will. You know, the the one who claims to be very religious and says very like over the top religious type biblical sounding things. He he walks out of uh, out of the man's house um, 
uh, that we saw him in the first scene that we saw Stilson in. He walks out of the house and says something about, oh, it's a, what a glorious day. And his henchman comes up behind him and goes, amen. And in... In the very final vision... Yes. In the last... In, well, in one of the last visions of the movie where he sees Stilson uh, launching the missiles... It is the last vision, isn't it? No, there's one more that he sees with Stilson. Oh, right, yeah. right, right. Okay. Um, and the second best line in the movie... Second or third best. The wolf is loose is pretty is way up there. And then the ice is going to break. Ice is going to break is number one. Obviously number one. Okay. Ice is going to break is number one. Then maybe the wolf is loose. And then he says, the missiles are flying. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Which again ties into um, that kind of religious through line. And I think it's interesting that they they cut out uh, him being a Bible salesman. Hmm. Because they kept those, those themes. Like... Yeah. They kept all of the all of the connecting themes and like uh, character traits and stuff like that. I mean, only only someone who who at least was around religion or pretended to be religious or was religious or something like that would use phrases like "Hallelujah, Hallelujah." And I, or, I think like in the in the book, Stilson does something when he's young. Like you, you, they establish him as a Bible salesman, and then he does something like he kicks a puppy to death. Yes, 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 something. yes. He take he he uh, takes his anger out on a poor little puppy. This is an this is a really interesting scene to me because I I don't think that it's a hundred percent necessary. I don't think it does. It has any purpose other than showing us that Stilson's a dickhead. Mm. Uh, this is the scene with the reporter, like an evil asshole. Yeah. So he's he's talking to the reporter. He was blackmailing the reporter or the editor of the newspaper or whatever, because apparently the editor of the newspaper has some incriminating evidence against Stilson that he's going to publish some kind of photos or something we have no we uh, and i when i rewatch these for the podcast i i try to pay attention to all the little story details and Mm. try to find plot holes and dumb stuff like that and they never really explain what it is exactly that that he has like Mm. what the what the editor has on 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 stilson but you get the impression that Stilson has incriminating photos of the editor of him in a in an affair with a woman that's not his wife. Um, so he blackmails him, and I think the the entire purpose of this scene is to show that Stilson's a dick who is willing to actually not only blackmail, but he says something about killing the guy if he mm, if he yeah, prints the photos the anyway. End. He says it right here. What if I don't make a deal, Stilson? And uh, take your. Says, Take your goddamn head off. Mm-hmm. I'll have Sonny take your goddamn head off. Yep. That's um that's pretty serious, serious business. But I don't know if we needed that because Martin Sheen is so over the top evil. Yeah, like from the, the first scene. You're right. Like you don't have to threaten so directly like that because I already know. Th- I mean, this I never comes back up. This, yeah, this plot never really comes back up at all. Um so I think it's kind of strange that it's in the movie at all. It doesn't really doesn't really have a place in the movie, I don't mm, think. It is, and it's forgettable too, I think. Yeah, like that it only serves one purpose in the movie that and that didn't need to be served because we've already got that. And again, with if we're just trying to establish that he's an evil guy, why couldn't we have just gotten something way earlier in the movie with him kicking a puppy to death after selling Bibles, right? Sure, like- that's a perfect way to introduce that someone's evil. <laughs> Puppy kicker, he's an evil son of a bitch that yeah, deserves right, to yeah, right. that deserves his eye. 
Um, this is the scene that I mentioned earlier where the poem of the Raven comes mm-hmm. back up. Uh, Johnny asks Chris, the kid that he's been tutoring, to uh, to jump ahead to the part where he, in the poem, uh, Poe says that he's, he will never see her again. Um, because the Raven is ostensibly about uh, someone who has lost a great love. Yeah. Somehow. I don't know if it ever says in specific terms. I guess she died, maybe. I don't. I don't know the poem very well. I just know what it's about, and I know that the Raven itself kind of uh, echoes the author's feelings of, uh, or the character's feelings, the man's feelings in the poem of regret and that he will never see her again. I guess her, her name is Lenore. Lenore. Yeah. Mm. It's been a long time since I've read that. Um. But yeah, it's interesting that, that you know they they call back to that scene. There, um, they call back to the scene from the very very beginning of the movie, and now it has a new context. Now that you know this classic poem that everyone yeah. you know everyone knows, um, and now he's he's in the position of the of the narrator of the poem. Yeah, yeah. Where it, he's lost his love, and here and here he sees her right after hearing the poem, and probably thinking about that and uh she's married to who is this guy exactly he's just a campaign he's a, guy for yeah, stilson? The, both both of them are campaigning for stilson mm-hmm. and he just came up to his came up to johnny's house by chance uh trying to sell him you know given some literature or something yeah. like that and sarah happens to come up and she's like oh it's my husband this is this is who i'm married to this is who stole me from you basically this is the guy that i cheated on with you yeah a little while back please don't say anything she's winking really hard the yeah. whole time. <laughs> <laughs> that was cool that time we never had sex right <laughs> all right <laughs> that was cool when i sent you off in a rainstorm Wait, are and you seizuring you what's what's wrong with you <laughs> It's 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 the coma. It's messing with my eye. That's my best. I'm sorry. That's my best walking. That's pretty good. <laughs> uh, but this this moment right here, I really like. Like this is one of the moments in the movie that I think feels really causal. Mm. Where you know you go he from kind of bends over at the door and yeah, you go from a scene where the boys talking about. He's reading The Raven, which now has a new context with the great lost love. The great lost love then comes to the door. She goes away. His character is crying. The boy is there trying to comfort him. He hugs the boy to get comfort and then has a vision. Yeah, it's all it's all very um, real sound. Like, I believe every it's moment how, that happens. Right. It's a, it's how a story should be yeah, told. It's yeah. linear. It's causal. It's this I'm not happens. sitting there going, oh, that was, well, okay. Yeah. Like, it's a, I, I, I can't remember chance. where I heard, heard this quote, but it's a quote about storytelling. And it's that if your next story beat is and then, you're doing it wrong. It should be so then. If mm, you can connect. Yeah, that makes sense. If you can connect everything in your story with so then, so then this happened. So then this happened. Then you're doing it the right way. Yeah. Makes so, sense. Yeah. Not that there aren't, aren't, there shouldn't be surprising moments in a story. And if oh, everything exactly, is yeah. perfectly connected, then, then I don't think that you can have super surprising moments like that. Um, but, but I think at least for major plot points and stuff, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be like, well, that was out of the blue. Right. <laughs> you know, it should be something that 
that flows nicely, and this movie definitely does. And we're about to get the best line in the movie. Yeah, we've 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 made it. Are we are we at a hundred percent walking yet? He at this very moment he's ninety nine percent. We haven't been keeping very good. We haven't been keeping tabs on how walking he is, but he is ninety nine percent walking. And I mean, he's got the popped collar. He's got the glassy eyes, the hair, the Jello mold. The Jello mold hair, the David Cronenberg hair. He's stuttering. The cane, the limp, everything, and he's about to. He's about to go over the edge. Boom! Oh, the ice is gonna break. It's amazing. What's interesting that I just noticed is we just came out of a scene a minute ago where the bad guy, quote-unquote, hit a glass jar of something off a table in an angry way before he yeah, yelled a line. Yeah, he did. That's Nobody's an interesting, gonna mess with me that's or an interesting parallel said. there. And then right here we have our protagonist hit a glass jar of something and shatter it right before he yells mm-hmm. a line. That's interesting. I, I've not noticed that before. That's, that's great. Very cool. Um... Yeah, so he is he has officially reached uh, critical mass of Walken. He's one hundred percent right. Christopher Walken critical now. Mass? Cri- cri- critical said? mass of Walken. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he's got like the bags under his eyes and everything. I think I said it before. He is incre- he he is just incredibly iconic to me. Like I, I I think had this movie been more popular, had been more like long lasting, uh, kind of lasted really past the test of time, I guess, mm. as they say. Um, I think the character of Johnny Smith would really go down as one of those iconic, great characters. Because he looks the part. I mean, look at him. Like, yeah. he's, he's the whole package. Yeah. Like, he's got a costume, and he's got a, a weird limp and a walk, and a strange cadence to his voice, and an incredible actor, you know, giving him, you know, life. I really, really like Johnny Smith is one of my favorite characters in fiction of all time. I think he's just amazing, especially played by Christopher Walken, which is strange when you hear things like Stephen King's pick for Johnny Smith was uh, an actor by the name of Bill Murray. (laughs) Oh, that's weird. And that's why we don't let Stephen King direct movies more than once. Yes, true, true. That is why. But I kind of didn't he try to write the script for this? Did we already talk about that? We didn't talk about that. He did. Uh, the The guy who wrote uh, the script for this movie is a screenwriter by the name of Jeffrey Bohm, who wrote movies like The Lost Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon two and three, and a really awful movie called The Phantom, starring Billy Zane in a in a terrible purple suit. Huh. Yeah. Not not a good movie. Okay. <laughs> uh, but they gave. Bohm, the the script um, first. He was the initial script writer on the first draft. He turned in the draft. They didn't like it. Uh, the the guy, the producer, didn't like it. It's a really famous uh, old Hollywood producer by the name of Dino De Laurentiis. Mm. Uh, he didn't like it, so they gave the script writing duties to Stephen King himself. And Stephen King turned in a script that De Laurentiis apparently rejected and said it was too involved and convoluted hmm. which is kind of you know kind of a jab at did you see that danny's dragon eggs were on the table here i did see daenerys's dragon eggs 
This this shot right here where, where Danny calls, or not Danny, um, <laughs> I hate you. What have you done to me? Johnny calls Chris and he doesn't, He Chris picks up the phone, but Johnny doesn't answer. Is that a is that a callback to when uh, the doctor called his mom? Yes, when the, the doctor, uh, Dr. Wiesak, called his mom to confirm that she was still alive, you know, and to kind mm. of confirm Johnny's power. Um, what the doctor says at that point is that it's not meant to be. Mm. Now, the interesting thing about his that... gift is not meant to be. And, and this is... Uh, it's not natural. I think I think so. I think that's the fr- when that happens earlier in the film when he says it's not meant to be. That's why I didn't talk to her. That's the first sense of balance that you feel in the film, and I think that that's a very strong through line. Uh, is that J- Johnny may be changing what is destined to be? But we aren't really getting those like like uh, like usually in a movie where someone messes with the past or messes with the future or something like that. Usually we get like a consequence that. Th- well, you saved her life, but then that means that but this there, but their house full of puppies exploded. Like but there is a price for Johnny. The moment the price that, is that he's dying. Well, the price is not only that he's dying, but the moment that he wakes up from the coma with this newfound ability, he's lost his ability to walk like he once had. He's lost the great love in his life. He's lost the ability to drive a car or the the desire to drive a car. Uh, he's lost a lot of. Th- he's lost his job. He's lost a lot, and in. As a replacement for that, he has this ability. Now, the more he uses the ability, the more he loses, so much so that it, it appears that he is dying, and that's what we saw. But I don't feel like we're getting negative consequences for it. Like, like the other boys still died in the skating accident, which parallels the skating accident, which was cut from this movie, which was a part of the, the book. But yeah. um, the other boys, it said two drowned on the newspaper. It said two drowned in skating accidents. So, so the other boys that his... Uh, the kid who he was tutoring would have gone play, to play hockey with. They still died, I guess. But but I don't see anything negative happening as a consequence to him saving the one kid, though. I think it's it's that he, the more he uses it, the more... It's just harder on him. It's just harder on him. I think that the, the, this... We see him laying down a lot more now. Yeah, I think that this is a karmic world that... The, the movie takes place in a karmic world where there is a balance and there is a price that you pay for, you know, this ability or this this curse, I guess you can call it. Um, but right now he's at the political rally because he looks out his window and he sees Sarah at the political rally and he goes across the street to, to I guess, talk to her. Stilson arrives and he's just about to encounter Stilson accidentally. Right, and he's going to get the vision that he didn't get before because he got a political campaign button instead of a vision. He's going to get that handshake that he's been missing out on, and then we're going to get an amazing scene. Third best line in the movie. Yes, absolutely. Um, Have we talked about the music at all? I don't think so. I really like the music in this movie. It's it's by a man named Michael Kamen. and he composed the music in London, I guess, where he was living at the time. And when he would play the score on his piano at home, his his neighbors complained and said that, you know, that they couldn't sleep when he was playing the music. And not only that, but he was giving their family nightmares. Ah, so he was like... He was like, perfect. Yes, <laughs> I, got, I it. got it. And it's a, it's a great score. You can actually find it. Uh, you can't find a lot of Michael Kamen scores on the iTunes Music Store, but you can find this one completely unabridged. I downloaded it as soon as I, I found it on there. I bought it. 
spent real money on it. Did you? No, no BitTorrent for me. Real money. And um, it's wonderful. Where are they in this vision? Where I think they're supposed to be at Camp David. Camp David? Which is a, it's a vacation spot or a, a not a hideaway, but it's where the president, yeah, the president goes there oh, okay. to do stuff. That's cool. But this is a, a, a future premonition. I wish I had a Camp David. I guess all premonitions are future, right? That was, that was redundant. So this is a premonition of Stilson as the president of the United States uh, ordering a general to give his confirmation handprint. And Martin Sheen is just chewing scenery, just just mm. snacking on the scenery in this. Just snacking? Just snacking. Which is really funny to see him in this because if you've ever watched The West Wing, he plays the president in that show. And also in the miniseries Kennedy that came out uh, this same year as as this movie. So you you see the miniseries Kennedy and then you watch The Dead Zone and you see very different uh, examples of the president of the United States as played by Martin Sheen. I guess he does have kind of a presidential quality to him. Hmm. Um, But I think that there's just a a wonderful mashup waiting to happen of his insanely like wise and benevolent president from the West wing. That, and this that guy chewing who maniac. is standing with him. Is that his same bodyguard? Yes, it is. And this is <laughs> the best line in the movie where he tells Mr. Vice president, Mr. Secretary, the missiles are flying. Hallelujah. 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 It's great stuff. Really, really great stuff. And then Johnny's like, well, but back, that's a problem. Back to uh, the, the score. This is actually the one of three movies. Oh, by the way, who are the missiles flying at? I think in the book it says Russia, but they never say in the movie. Uh, this score is one of only three scores that... Uh, for a David Cronenberg movie that is not done by Howard Shore. Howard Shore has been doing David Cronenberg's movies since all the way back to Shivers, I think, his very, very first films. Um, and this is one of only three that he didn't do, uh, which I, I, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing because uh, it's a, you know, it's a really, really great score. And, uh, like I said, I've been listening to it a whole lot, basically on repeat for the past two weeks, and uh, I, I really like it a lot. Do you like the score? Yeah, I guess so. It's not really a it's not really a Jessica ish score. We describe things as Dustin things and Jessica things quite a mm. bit on this show, don't we? Yeah, it's really it's a little too. It sounds a little too eighties seventies for me. Like I can it does have that he- kind of I quality to it. it. Yeah, I can hear the decade and. If I can hear the decade, then I'm probably, unless for some weird reason I am in the mood to hear that decade, then it's unlikely that I'm going to want to listen to something that sounds like a some when. I think I mentioned it before, but in the scene in in Camp David that we just saw, that was one of the scenes that, that Christopher Walken's helpless you know, apparition was supposed was to be supposed stand, to be there, but supposed he wasn't. To be there. It would have been the I third. I like it when he's in the. I visions. do too. I do too. I like it more. It it adds another dimension to it. Like yeah, it adds another dimension to his like psychology and how it affects him when he has to watch these people do it, like as though it's really ha- happening right before him. I think. I that, I still. What's your favorite vision? And 
Oh, the fire. The fire one? The fire. The, yeah, the fire in the room one. was the best. I mean, I love, don't get me wrong, I love the Camp, Camp David scene because it's super, no pun intended, campy. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the line, but uh, technically speaking, like the way it's shot and the way it's presented, like him in the bed and the bed is on fire and just all that stuff, it's so great. And the, the, the boiling fish bowl and then that exploding, yeah, it's, that's a yeah. really, really great scene. Poor fish. Poor fish. Poor delicious <laughs> cooked goldfish. <laughs> Uh, but in, in this scene right here, we mentioned the three scenes before that comprise um, the man versus man conflict, which is a very, very small part mm. of this this movie. This is the second of those scenes. The The first of the scene is he shakes the hand, his hand, shakes Stilson's hand at the Sweet. rally, sees the vision. Gets the vision. This is the second scene where... Uh, He's debating whether or not he should kill him. Yeah. Yeah, where Wezak asks, or or Johnny asks Wezak whether or not he would kill Hitler if he could right. go back and if he had the chance, and Wezak said, "Yeah, I'd have to kill the son of a bitch." That's how he puts it. And he says, "Yes, of course," which um, you know, and is all so, that he needs. So he walks into the house, and we get a we get, a, and this is his father's house. This is his father's house, and we get a god shot all the way through this house. Of him picking and up the, God the rifle. Godshot of the Ritz crackers. Yes, brought to you by Quaker Oats. Um, and he gets the rifle. He gets the ammunition. He modifies the rifle to, I guess, travel with it so it's hidden. Um, and I guess the one of the last things we get to kind of drive home the the Christ metaphor is the. Uh, plaque on the wall when he walks right. in. You blink and you miss it. I, I actually had to pause to get what the plaque says, but the plaque on the wall next to the door reads, and it even it even looks as though he looks at the plaque for a second when yeah. he walks in. It says, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. And that's kind of him during the visions. It that's is. The ones he where he's is. present for, he's helpless, and he can't do anything in those visions, but he sees, yeah. and he listens. And that's kind of the, that is the kind of the concept of an uh, omniscient God yeah. being is yeah. that he at least is everywhere and sees all things. Even if he can't do anything even about if he them. Can't, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about an omnipotent God, but at least an omniscient God. Um, so that, and that leads us to what will be our, our last scene of the movie, which just like the rest of the movie, I mean, the, the movie has closure. I think all of the characters get closure, um, and the movie feels like it has closure. But Who's when he the, writing this letter to is Sarah, this to, his, to it's Sarah. To Sarah. Mm. When it's over, it's over, and as soon as all of the characters get their closure, the movie ends and, and just cuts to credits, and it gives you kind of this cold feeling, like the the movie's just like that's it. There's no more mm. to it. it yeah. it's not. They don't soften the blow or anything, um, which is. So Cronenberg, yeah, it just goes along with his style. But but I'm okay with that. Like his artful lack of style, and that everything is presented at face value, and no more, no less. Face value. That's what you get. And I love the I love that about him as an artist. He is. I think he to me he is one of the great film auteurs. I really I really really think so. Um. So he's here at the at the meeting hall. He's going I think to. He's in Cambridge. It said. Is that what it said? Um, so he's going to break into the meeting hall and he's going to camp out in the balcony with the yeah. The rifle looks short. It looks like he oh he he took it apart. I think mm, yeah. He took apart the rifle to travel with it. 
Um, but yeah, he does become a martyr. And like we said, you've got these... Religion plays a part on different levels in this movie in, in such a way that I, I... I don't think you could call it simple or, you know, or trite or anything like that. Because I think that it's... Maybe it doesn't have a specific message about religion, but it's using it as a narrative tool. It's using it yeah. as a tool uh, that I think is is really interesting. And I I wonder where that painting went. Of I wonder where that is today. The painting of of Stilson of Martin Sheen as as Stilson with the hard hat on and the uh, American flag behind him. I would love to have that on my wall. Would you? That's an amazing piece yeah, of movie memorabilia that's not going on our wall. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I think that's really good stuff. Um, now, before this this scene plays out, we got Stilson arriving at the meeting hall, and Johnny's waiting out in the balcony. I have watched this movie a lot, but preparing for the podcast, rewatching it again after after a couple of years of having not seen it, I misremembered the ending. Mm. And I, did you think he killed him? Yeah, I I, I misremembered Johnny actually succeeding yeah. in his assassination attempt and killing Stilson. Um, but that's not what happens. I think the ending is much, much better much than better. that. Yeah, yeah, much better than that, yeah. actually. Um, but because that's the easy place to go to is to is to kill him and feel like he he did the right thing and he got it and he right. But we can still get that closure because he's going to have his last vision. He doesn't have to kill him. He does worse than kill him. He shames him to death. He ruins him. That's worse than killing him. And then he kills himself. Right. Which is, yeah. Yeah, it's It's worse. even more satisfying. Right. Because, um, let's, let's oh, be real. Oh, kiss the baby. Oh, that's, kiss, <laughs> well, he says, he says, I'm supposed to do that. <laughs> He's at least aware, right? Um, kiss the baby that you're going to use as a human shield. This is, so all of Stephen King's books take place in Maine, is that right? Uh, or, not all of them. Or a great the, deal of them? A lot of them do, because he was born there and he lives there now. He's lived there for a while. I think this also takes place in Maine in a city called Castle Rock. They actually refer to the killer, the serial killer before, as the Castle Rock Killer. Mm. Uh, but other other stories of Stephen King's that take place in this city are Stand By Me, Cujo, The Dark Half, and Needful Things. Wow. So this is a happening town. It is, Where man. just crazy, awful shit happens yeah. all the time. You better be careful in Castle Rock, Maine. It's not a, that's not a place you want to live, I don't think. Is that a real place? I think it is. Is it, well, maybe not. I don't know. I've been to Maine, but only as a child. I mean, so. either which way. If he, even if it's created, it's uh, it's you know, if all of his stories take place here in Stephen King's universe, Castle Rock, Maine is yeah, not a place to be. <laughs> you you should just not not visit there. Um. Do you know, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about it, but do you know where Stephen King gets, or where they, it is said that he got his inspiration from for his, his dark stories? A lamp in the office of his editor? <laughs> no, that's a family guy joke. Nowhere. Aren't you funny? I'm so um, funny. There's in, a storm going on outside, which I think is apt for I, us talking about. Is it about. a storm or is it? Um, Matsuri, because I'm pretty oh, sure... Oh, festival? It, I, I think it's a storm. I think we've got some thunder going on. Um, so, 
Well, we did have a typhoon last night, which is why we chose not to record last night. Oh, the photographer taking all the pictures of Stilson here is uh, is Martin Sheen's son, I think. Getting shot in the hand would really suck. Oh, yeah, it would be I awful. mean, it would suck to be shot anywhere. Anyway, so he... Um, his father left when he was a kid under the pretense of going to buy a pack of cigarettes. And um, later in Stephen King's life in an attic, he went upstairs and he found some books that were his father's and he found a copy of H.P. Lovecraft's The Lurker in the Dark. Ah. And just based on the cover, he was he was like, yeah, I feel a connection. And after he read it, he said, I knew that I'd found home when I read that book. <laughs> However, though, what... Uh, now he talks. As oh, I, this is the final vision before we, oh, we, we get our final of so, picking up the gun. Stilson has grabbed him and asks, "Like who? You, who's working for you? Who are you working for? And who are you?" And he grabs his hand and and he gets a vision of Stilson holding a baby up to shield himself. We get to see the Newsweek magazine that shows, a and we saw the reporters Stilson, sitting there taking uh, the pictures too, played so. by Sheen's son, and. Uh, Stilson kills himself in that in that vision, and Johnny knows that he's like, okay, his work is done. I he's, did it. He, I mean, he does. He saves the world, but right. he loses his life to do it. There, there's actually um, uh, an alternate ending to the movie where Johnny survives, and then he predicts a knife attack against his girlfriend while he's in the hospital, and then he slips back into a coma and dies. What? I, yeah, I know. I, I'm glad this is the ending. Instead, oh dear, this is a much much better ending. Huh. Oh, yeah, but they do do this this crappy thing here at the end with her. Yes. Oh, they... yes. So if you if you listen carefully, if you're if you're able to pick out this kind of thing, um she, this is the last shot of the movie. She's going to be hugging Johnny and as when her mouth is obscured against his jacket, you can see her, hear her say the line I love you, but it's very clearly ADR'd. It's very clearly recorded and dubbed over in there. Here it is, right here. Yeah, yes. It sounds very weird, and not just not just. It the, was put in later, but like her, her delivery of it and everything. It's just. I love you. Yeah. I love you. You got to get really close to the mic. I love you. They they did it. <laughs> Thanks. I'll love editing that out. No, I'm not going to. Uh, but they did that to give Johnny more closure, and I don't think that he needed that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't like I don't it. Think that it was, I think it was really I unnecessary. Like okay, so before before we finish, I want to finish telling you where the Stephen King, right, he talks about getting his inspiration for his dark, scary novels uh, from, and short stories, uh, from, from, like, not getting his inspiration, but that's where it started, was from finding this H.P. Lovecraft book when he was a kid. Right. But he talks about that. He's openly spoken of that before. He talks about it, I think, in his book called, I think it's called On Writing, mm-hmm. something like that, but um, uh, which he was writing before and after the car accident that we talked about in 1999. Um, however, though, something happened in his life when he was a child that he doesn't cite, but apparently when he was a kid, he saw one of his friends hit, struck, and killed by a train. Wow. And... That's dark. Walked home. Uh, I I don't know. Obviously, I don't know exactly what happened, but I guess he walked home from this and went into the house and stuff. And his mom, or maybe his dad, was still around. So maybe his dad too. They're 
didn't know what was wrong with him because he was in shock and he was kind of speechless. And they didn't find out till later that he had witnessed it. He says he has no memory of it. Wow. But that's that's. But weird. I mean, that's definitely even if he doesn't have a memory, like that's that'll subconsciously shape you for the rest of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. You know. Wow, that's that's kind of that's kind of amazing. Um, okay. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of, uh, on that note, on, on that, that note, on that up note, yeah. uh, that'll bring us to the end of another episode of the Popcorn Poops podcast. Uh, as usual, you can find us on the internet, on our blog at popcornpoops.blogspot.com. You can also send us a question or a comment. Uh, just send us an email at thepopcornpoops at gmail.com. Uh, you can also send us a question or a comment on Twitter or on Facebook. On Twitter, we are under uh, at Popcorn Poops, and you can just search for us on Facebook. Please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook for updates to the show and all of the little hints that we give out about you know our, our forthcoming episodes. There, we try to make them fun. We try to make it fun for you. Um, where can we find your personal uh, Twitter account on the internet? I am at Jesse Casper, and I am at Dusty Cram Cram, and that will bring us to the end. So we will see you guys next week. We are the popcorn. Pop-